seek to help the Corinthians understand uh, in these couple of chapters about this task of giving generously, uh, raising this offering uh, to send away to the Judean believers who have been struggling. And we come to the end of chapter 8, and it's largely administrative, largely uh, logistical, and it's one of those passages you read, and uh, I think, as I said at the start of the sermon, or the service, on first read, you, you, you might be a little bit like, okay, why, why does God include those details for us, and, and does it really matter, and is it really worthwhile for us, and, and, and actually, I think it really is. And over the last few years, and, and doing lots of reading, studying, um, working on this, in this degree program on leadership, one of the things I've discovered is you have all these secular models of leadership. I just finished one class where we looked at five different models of leadership, ways to lead and ways to structure uh, an environment so that you can have some progress and efficiency and effectiveness, how you produce change. And so you have secular models, and then you have all these folks that are believers that are working in the secular world and, and, they, and, and pastors, and they want to do it Christian. So what they do is they take these secular models, and then they're reading the Bible, and they're kind of filtering it through secular models and Bible, and then they see proof texts. And, and they find, oh, this text backs up this, so this text supports this. And um, it's a little bit like a, a blind, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Stop clock is right twice a day, right? So... But lots of times the passages are just ripped out of context and they don't really go with what they're trying to claim. And then you have a third category, and that's uh, what, I would, what I would describe as really serious students of the Bible. And as they're working through the Bible, they begin to see applications and ways to say, hey, you know what, this really affects how I should lead and how I should administrate. And honestly, this is one of those texts that when you dig into it and you start to exegete the text and you start to work your way through it, you begin to see some very key ways you should administrate or lead, manage. And it really doesn't matter if you're doing that as a believer out in the secular workforce, if you're doing that in your home, uh, or if you're doing it in church. And the primary application here is in the church. Obviously, that's where it's happening. And by that, I mean both local and universal, because we have both going on. As Paul's talking about the Macedonian churches, talking to the Corinthian church about how to minister to the Judean Christians who are suffering. And so the question that, that I would ask you is, how do you lead people? How do you administrate things? How do you get things done? And, and it's really not positional. It doesn't have to be positional leadership. It, it really can be anything where you can wield some influence. When you see a need, and specifically I'm going to talk about it in a ministry context, but how do, you, how do you get from point A to point B? How do you produce change? How do you get things done? And one of the things that's become evident as I've been studying Paul's writing here from 8 forward as he's talking about this, is he has this theme he keeps coming back to, and the theme would be this in an overarching way, making the invisible visible, right? So acts of grace, God's grace. I'm going to make the invisible, because grace is invisible. You don't really see it, right? So grace is invisible. How am I going to make invisible grace visible? I'm going to do that through acts of ministry, and specifically through generosity, how do we make the Spirit visible? The Spirit obviously is invisible. And we begin to learn through spiritual gifts. God gives us spiritual gifts. and So whether that's leadership or teaching or uh, serving, exhortation, mercy, generosity. I'm sure I'll leave one out. Please don't be insecure if I don't list yours. That's the Spirit on fire inside of you working out of you when you're using your gift in a Holy Spirit-empowered way to really demonstrate Christ to others. Well, this morning, the way we administrate the way we lead in very practical ways actually puts the kingdom 
on display. It makes the invisible kingdom of Christ not yet seen. It makes it very real and tangible and obvious to others around us. That's what's actually happening in these verses. So let me read them. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, down to the end of the chapter in verse 24. And then by God's grace, we'll start unpacking them together this morning. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we're sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. How do we make the invisible visible in the realm of the kingdom let's talk a little bit about kingdom dynamics let's talk about how do we what do we mean by and how do we understand kingdom kingdoms are known by the character of their leaders and the way they wield power you know it was in our minds what it would be like if the taliban were to retake afghanistan Uh, i don't i don't think any of us were under any illusions of how horrific that potentially could be we had this idea of living under the fundamentalist islamic state and the, their mindset of how they interpret and apply the Quran, what they would do. But it was largely imaginative. We have some track record. We've seen it in other places. But, but we didn't know what it would be like. And then the invisible became visible. They retook Afghanistan in, in like less than a month. And, and, and now the regime is in force. And what has happened? Well, they're murdering people who cooperated with any of the Western allies. Uh, they have already restricted women and girls from education, from school settings. They've already begun to subjugate the population, enforcing dress codes, uh, eating restrictions, uh, political affiliations, and free speech. They've, they've already started chopping the hands off of people who may steal because they're now actually starving because the food sources are being sent up the chain so those with the most power get all the benefit. That's how these work. Any oppressive regime, whether it's religious based like them or whether it's simply sociological like communism and socialism, they all work to enslave the populace for those that are in power. And that's exactly what's happening. The kingdom has been made real to us. And kingdoms are defined by, they, they are known by the character of their leaders. These men can claim all they want that they're hiding behind religious idealism. We know this, they are abusive, wicked, selfish men. That's what it boils down to. They're desperately wicked in desperate need of a Savior. And they work out their wickedness by oppressing others. Kingdoms are known by the character of the leaders and the way they wield power. Well, that's not just true of the Taliban or in Afghanistan. That's not just true of fundamentalist Islam. That's true of every kind of kingdom. That's true of every kind of nation, every kind of regime. You look at the United States, if we were to turn the gaze inward, are we not known 
by the character and the nature of our leaders and the way they wield power. Uh, we can love the United States all we want to. You can be as patriotic as you want to. All I would call you to is some intellectual honesty that we are the greatest exporters of infanticide on the globe. We slaughter more infants and pay for it than anyone else, freely and wholesale. We do more to damage and, and destroy the image of God, whether it's through plastic surgery or idealistic forms, than anyone else. We are the power brokers. We go to war and we claim that it's just war as long as it meets our financial ends and we don't get involved in wars around the globe if it doesn't. That's, that's who we are. The reality is that's who we are as a people. We love our nation. We can be very upset about all those kinds of things, and we should be. But if you travel abroad and you ask people abroad, that's how we're known. And that's not wrong. Kingdoms are known this way. Kingdoms are known by the character of the leaders and the way they wield power. Well, what about Christ's kingdom? Because he has come as a king, and he has come with a kingdom. Well, when we look at the Old Testament, the kingdom of Christ was largely hidden. Uh, and so we had all these shadows and images that it was going to happen, right? So we have like King David. And so we saw or we see what it's like to have an imperfect, obviously, lots of sin. But we're able to see what it's like to have a king who has a heart after God. Uh, who doesn't run to idolatry and wants to lead people in worship, writes largely the, the hymnal uh, that the people use. We're able to see what it's like to have a king who's wise in Solomon and how he adjudicates and how he pushes forth justice and now he deals with injustice. But these are shadows and types, right? They're all pointing forward to a better king. We have the temple and the tabernacle, which point to a more perfect heaven. We have the sacrificial system and the death of a lamb, which points to, and it's a shadow of yet the future perfect lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. All these are shadows and types, and they are images, and they are hinting at a future king and a future kingdom. But none of that becomes sight until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, you finally have the king. That's why when Mark in his gospel is recording the first gospel declaration of Jesus in Mark 1.15, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom now becoming sight in the person of Jesus. This is why John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, slain. Right, And, and so we understand that this is now the arrival. Well, when you have a kingdom, you've got to have a king. But then you start asking for some other things. Right? Is it really a kingdom if all you have is a king but no people? Is it really a kingdom if all you have is a king but no land? Is it really a kingdom if all you have is a king but no rules? And all those things, the people, the land, and the regulations and rules, they become manifestations, listen now, of the character of the king himself. And so you want to know the rules that we live under? It's called the law of love, Galatians 5. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Live as a kingdom citizen. Here, now, even though the kingdom doesn't seem obvious, he starts to build his kingdom in the hearts and lives of people by rescuing them. And guess what? Putting them under the dominion of the king. When we get saved, we turn from our sin and we put our faith in Christ as our king and we are ruled and led by King Jesus now. And so even though I am a citizen of the United States and joyfully and happily and thankfully so, I am first and foremost a kingdom a citizen of heaven. And so his character begins to be known through his citizens. And one day all of this will become sight, right? One day... We will be in the eternal kingdom with the king visible, all the people, the citizens' presence, the rule and regulations perfect because there's no longer any kind of sin. 
But right now, the kingdom is largely hidden. It's in you and I as Christ has rescued us. He's working it out of us as he is sanctifying us, as he's changing us. He's calling us to turn from sin, live holy. And he's causing us to walk by faith, believe in the gospel. The essence of the kingdom is Christ the King. But the way he's building it is through the lives of people as he saves the lost and as he sanctifies the believer. Different things then make the kingdom visible. Spiritual gifts, as I said a minute ago, make the kingdom visible as this world and one another begin to experience things like mercy and giving and administration and leadership and teaching and exhortation as Jesus is working out of us. As we've learned over the last few weeks, uh, the generosity of God and the love that exists in the kingdom of Christ begins to be put on display as we give and meet the needs of one another. And this morning, healthy ministry administration advances Christ's kingdom while putting the king on display. Paul is on mission here for Jesus to rule and reign over every act of ministry. Yes, over the giving here, um, but he wants Christ to rule and reign over what he says and how he does and how he leads and how he serves. And he's calling us to all the same things. And so with healthy ministry administration, so whether that's ministry of your home, whether that's a ministry you have in writing, running a, or leading in a circular, secular workplace environment, um, and, and it's not that the sacred is better than the sec- secular, I'm just simply calling you to apply your spiritual leadership in a secular context. Well, no matter where it's at, it's all on mission to make Jesus' kingdom apparent and obvious you know, we've all been led by really bad leaders at times in our lives. I, I guarantee you, we've all had bad teachers. We've all had bad leaders. We, we've all had bad politicians. We've all had bad bosses. I remember one guy I worked for, no matter the job I did, no matter how well I did the job, uh, I'd come in and, and show him my, my work product, and he would always find something wrong. I mean, if he had to look at it for 15 minutes to find something wrong, he'd look till he found it. And he told me, he said, you know, I'm just on mission, Steve, that even if you bring me a 99 product, I want to push it to 100. Well, great for you, dude. But a little bit of encouragement would be nice. He didn't know how to encourage. Then I've had other leaders that they never critique you, and you never get better. I've had some bosses that, that, that rode me like I was a lazy mule. And I had other bosses that I could never get any kind of instruction from. or meeting. We've all had bad bosses. There's times in my life I've been a horrific administrator where I don't communicate well, don't motivate well. And so when I come to a text like this and I get to see how Paul leads, I want to learn from him. I, I want to I reach in here and ask my heart this question, how can I administrate or lead or manage whatever word you want to hang on it here, in a way that shows Jesus. And I'm probably not going to glean that best from picking up another secular book on leadership and reading it, but learning from the Apostle Paul. And so uh, when we want to show the kingdom then, two things are happening in this text, largely. First of all, there's kingdom advance. Let me push Jesus' kingdom forward instead of my kingdom. Kingdom advance, right, and then kingdom displayed. Let me put it on display. So let's talk about this kingdom advance here. Paul has this intense burden 
for the suffering Christians in Judea. We've talked some about these folks, right? They, they're traveling. They're, they're largely, there's the diaspora, the dispersion that's happening because persecution has arrived. Uh, people are being martyred and killed. Paul had participated in the martyrdom, the murder of people simply for believing in Christ. They are, um, this is, this is uh, uh, cancel culture. Uh, first century we've got people saying i'm not going to go to your business i'm not going to trade with you because you follow jesus you can't come into the synagogue any longer we don't want you around us people are losing family members if you're going to follow jesus you can't celebrate passover with us or or celebrate um, purim with us we don't want you around us people are losing relationships families they are living out when jesus basically said you have to love father you you have to love me more than father mother sister brother he said that he came and he brought a sword that would really separate people cut people apart they're experiencing this and so now they're they're losing homes losing jobs losing money losing family members there are under intense persecution they are poor they are impoverished they can't afford food or clothing Paul is burdened for these people. He was a key voice and a leader in the movement to persecute them. So there's got to be a level of personal angst for him. He knows these people. They, they eventually welcomed him into the Jerusalem church after some fear. He, he has relationships with them. They've sent him out. He knows they're suffering. He wants to raise some money to help them. There's no PayPal. There's no Venmo. Uh, there's no GoFundMe. So what am I going to do? How am I going to help these people? And furthermore, Paul works as a tent maker and tent mender. So I've got to believe on some level Paul's first thought would be, I'll give what I can give. Well, we know Paul didn't have a lot. That's one of the things the Corinthians actually made fun of him and condemned him for. You don't have a lot because of the way you do ministry. We'd love to pay you lots of money. Paul says, I'm not going to be holding you in your pocket. And so Paul could send money, but he didn't have a lot of money to send. And so how does he approach this very obvious need? How does Paul do ministry in this moment when it feels like a tidal wave coming at him and all he's got is a thimble? Paul responds by using the spiritual gifts that God's given him. And Paul leads. Paul steps into this need with the gifts God has given him and decides that he's going to wield influence in such a way, use the spirit-empowered gifting that he has to make a difference. And so, taking his spirit-empowered gifting, I'm going to seek to meet this need as best I can. And the first thing he does is he actually administrates. He does something. Administration is hard. It is hard to exert administration and management. It's difficult. It's hard in the workplace. It is so difficult to deal with people, because that's what administration is. It's really dealing with people to get a job done, right? It doesn't matter if you're trying to turn out widgets, Roll a, roll a car off an assembly line. Uh, it doesn't matter what your workplace environment is. Hang some drywall, frame some buildings, uh, jobs that I used to do, or get people to serve pizza at Chuck E. Cheese. really doesn't matter what you're trying to do. People are hard to manage, but you have to administrate them. And I just want you to know, in the life and the context of the kingdom of Christ, there is a dynamic that makes it really, really difficult. You're all volunteers. That's tough. Because let's think about it. Why are you so motivated in your job? And how do your employers try to motivate you? If you do bad, do they not dock your pay? Would they not write you up? Would they not even, if you really were a terrible employee, fire you? And I don't know about now because it seems like nobody can hire anybody these days and everywhere I go it's terrible customer service. But if, if you really push them, they'll fire you. They don't want to, that's the threat. You don't want to lose your income 
they'll take your income away from you. You want to earn more income doing hard work, doing work well, doing a job well, guess what they do? They give you praise. They put you a new plaque on your desk. They put a new sign on your door. Uh, they give you a raise. You know, one of the things I was studying uh, over this last year, it's a fascinating study they did at a Harvard Business School. When someone makes above, now I, I know some of you are going to be like, what? That's a lot of money. And some of you are going to be like, how does somebody live on that? When, but when someone makes anywhere from $70,000 or above, anywhere in there, 70000 they typically include your benefits package. When a person arrives at that amount, you can give them raises all day long and it will not increase their motivation. Below that, raises motivate. And so in your secular workplace, they've done the managerial studies, if you're making less than that, giving you a little bit more sometimes will cure the employee blues and you'll work harder. They make more than that, it does not make people happier. You can give them raises all day long and it won't motivate them. What's that tell us? It tells us we all have a threshold. Needs met, largely. You got some extra income to spend. More money won't make you happy at work. But the way they try to motivate you is money. Money, time off, plaque, position, praise, you know, Get the whole team together and talk about what a great job you did. How do you do that in a volunteer workforce? Which is the, really the totality of Christian kingdom. Right? I mean, like, like they probably, they, you know, let's double the pay of all our nursery workers. Amen? I just make a motion, right? I mean, they're in there right now, long-winded preacher, dirty diapers, screaming kids. I don't know, maybe they're not screaming. When my kids were in there, screaming kids, um, they don't get paid for that. Nobody, nobody paid anybody to study Sunday school lesson, to teach it. Nobody, how do you do it? So when our whole world is structured in a commodity-based system, how do you do it? And so administrating people is really hard. And you don't really want to do it. And Paul does it. I think it takes courage and love and a lot of sacrifice to be willing to manage people in a ministry setting. It's not easy. That's why lots of larger churches, you'll have a teaching pastor, and guess what they hire? An administrative pastor. Let him deal with all the people. And there are people that are uniquely gifted this way, but ministry needs organization and administration. When we come to ministry, I think what we want to think is people are just going to be motivated out of the, the love that they have for God and others, and they should. People are just going to be burdened to do what they should do, and they should. Uh, people are just going to be driven by the Holy Spirit and gifted by the Spirit, and they should just function. And everything, everything should just be organic. And one of the things this text teaches us, along with the rest of the Bible, is there's nothing wrong with administration and structure in the life of Christ's kingdom. And in fact, organic ministry, a heart to do it, and structure are not opposed to each other. Let me prove that to you. When God creates the world, what's the first thing he does? He makes man and woman, and what's he do? He manages them, and he gives them, delegates them managerial responsibility. What, right? He says, what are you supposed to do to the world? Work it and keep it. Subdue it. He gives them a job to do, and he expects them to manage it. You, you already are thinking this way. You could drive through neighborhoods now, maybe your own subdivision. Do you see people who manage their yards well and people who don't? Yeah. Um, 
There are people that administrate well and people who don't. They, the land, God gives them land. When God has his people, his nation, starting to come out of Egypt, he gives them a leader in Moses. He points out the fact that one dude can't get it all done. So he helps through wisdom, through his father-in-law instruction, to set up a whole structure of administration so that, so that conflicts are resolved and people are taken care of and needs are met. Here, let me administrate this. He, he gives them eventually future kings, whether it's in David or in Solomon and so on, so that they can administrate all pointing to Jesus. When Jesus shows up, Jesus administrates. He sends them out two by two. He has them sits down in groups when he's going to feed the thousands. He ministers first to three, then to 12, then to 70, then to the multitudes. He administrates. Administration and management is not in opposition to organic ministry. Good administration helps organic ministry flourish and grow and do well. They're not opposed to each other. Why do I have to make that point? I have to make that point because most of us will work a job all week long and the last thing in the world we ever want somebody to do in a ministry setting is ask me or tell me to do something. You're not my boss, aren't we? Isn't everything equal at the foot of the cross? I mean, who do you think you are? But Paul steps in with administration. He has the freedom and the burden. He sees the need, and so Paul responds with what he can do. There's some basic leadership and administration that takes place here. He sets out the problem in 1 Corinthians 16. We looked at that last week. He said, here's the Judean Christians. Take up an offering every single week. Keep taking it up because I want you to take up an offering for a long period of time because guess what? You're going to be able to raise more money that way. And then when I get there, I'm going to take that money with me and I'll go to the Judea. He, so he tells them the problem. He communicates what the plan is going to be. He creatively communicates this plan. He lets them know this is how we're going to get from point A to B. This is where we're headed and this is how we're going to get there he tells them why we're doing it we're going to do this out of love for these people and you should love them and you should love jesus you should love them this is ultimately going to be for your blessing and benefit and then he gives an end game this is how we're going to stop this i'm going to come i'm going to take the money i'm going to get there good administrators listen good administrators tell you where you're going why you're going there how you're going to get there and they keep you moving until the job is done you can apply that in your home you can apply that in your neighborhood. You can apply that across the board. Secular work environment doesn't matter. Good leaders, good administrators tell you where you're going, how you're going to get there, why you're going there, and keep you motivated till the job is done. Now, my guess is you will land somewhere strengths-wise on some of that. Maybe you do a great job setting out vision. This is where we're headed. Uh, philosophy, this is why we're going to do it. You do a great job getting that, getting that bus rolling, right? And then you get distracted, shiny things about something else. Or maybe you're the kind of person you love to motivate. You are a motivator, right? Sometimes you motivate, you're like, you're like grandma on the sidelines cheering you on, right? Keep going, baby, keep going. That's my baby out there, keep running. Maybe you motivate like the drill sergeant. You best get your rear in the gear and get it done. You love to motivate. Maybe you just like to finish tasks. You're like, you're like the person who makes checklists for your checklists, you like to check things off, man. Sometimes you start your to-do list of the day, and I know there's people like this in this room. I know it. You start, and the things were already done yesterday. They were done last night, but they didn't show up on yesterday's checklist. So you go ahead and put them on Thursday's checklist just so you can start your day and check that off. Look at what I did. Look what I got done. You get, you get just this internal joy of checking things off. My guess is you land somewhere strengths, weakness, and all those. I just want you to know good leaders are going to administrate. 
they're going to get invested, and that's what Paul does. Good leaders don't just administrate, they communicate. Paul steps in here into this moment because despite the administration, the church in Corinth has fallen off the task. This is not unusual. It is not unusual to have people that start well, but they don't finish well. That's the nature of humanity. Even though the reality is people will always remember how you finished over how you started. A very wise leader I had once, one time, he told me this. Don't ever, ever, ever over-promise and under-deliver. Under-deliver. Always under-promise and over-deliver. Finish well. Finish better than you started. And so it's not unusual. And so what does Paul do in this moment? He steps in and he communicates. And what I mean by that is he deals with the issues. You see, this is part of where administration starts to get tough. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was able to volunteer at one of my son's races. This is so fun. I'm like so not made for cross country. Nobody ever looked at Steve and was like, that guy could run distances. Um, and so I volunteered at the race. I'm, I volunteered at the finish line. I didn't know a finish line of a 5K involves. It was one of the best Saturdays I've had in years. Um, kids are coming across the line, and they look like they're going to die, right? They just, they, they're like dead. They've run full out. I love it because I'm getting to cheer them on at the end. They finished well, right? Kids are collapsing coming across the finish line, and the problem with that is then they're going to get trampled. And so my job at the finish line is to grab them and drag them out of the way. I'm, I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm on this, right? And so I'm like, come on, come on, you got to go. And then some of you know, varsity girls, JV girls, these little like 12-year-old girls come up. I mean, it's like pitiful. Like you just really want to just carry them, right? They're like, you know, 55 pounds soaking wet, right? So it's like, come on, sweetie, come on. I can't do it. I can't do it. So like I'm a hero. It's amazing. I love the job. You, ever, you need to volunteer, right? So I had this one boy. I, I got to tell you, he's a varsity dude. He's like, I don't know, six five you know and when you're like five foot hobbit it's it's like he's a monster he's a man child and he comes across the line and he has been running and it felt like 95 degree weather it was just horrific out there he comes across the line and he's stumbling towards me and like he was like heat seeking missile on steve and he says he says help me and he collapsed on me he felt like he had just climbed out of a pool and like i'm covered in man boy sweat like just and he's got a fro like you would not believe. It was cool hair for a bald guy. He's like buried it in there. And I'm like carrying it. It was an amazing moment. A girl puked on my shoes. It was, it was cool. It was cool because I'm in the battle. I'm in it. I'm in it, right? It's amazing. Another dad is supposed to replace me. He's supposed to replace me. He shows up. And I'm like yelling at people, right? I'm like giving orders, right? We got kids wandering through the finish. I'm like, no, you got to get on the other side of the line. You got to get over there. Coaches only. Coaches only. Get over there right? I got other kids. Come on, baby. Come on, sweetie. You can do it. You can do it. Finish the wrong. Finish the wrong. That's right. Here's some water. Here's some water. Move over here. And he's like, I can't do this. And, and his wife's like, while, while children are puking. And, and I'm like, and he says, because I don't do good yelling at people. And it took every fiber of my being to not be like, get out the way and let the real men do the work, Right? And so that dude spent his time carrying bottles of water. He helped. But he didn't want to get too close to the mess. He didn't want to administrate. Are there times you see a need, you recognize the need, and it could be in your home, it could be in your workplace, it could be in a ministry setting, and you just, you know what? You don't want to get in the mess. 
Or maybe you're willing to be a leader until things go off the rails and you've got to tell somebody something. You see, because communication and administration, what Paul does here is two things. He does confrontation and he does commendation. And that's what good administration does. Confrontation and commendation. Paul praises people like Titus and these two anonymous brothers. And if you want to know all their names, you've got to go to Acts 20. It gives us a list. But for them, that's not what's important because that's not what he wants to communicate to them. But he wants to communicate in the process of this ministry task what is going on. And he doesn't have a problem telling somebody something. Now what that presumes is someone's going to listen to you when you tell them. And so I just, like, pause button on the sermon. Bing, are you the kind of person that can be administrated? Are you the kind of person that's like, don't tell me what to do? All right, unpause, back to the sermon. And so Paul is willing to do kingdom work, and he wants to communicate that to Corinthians. So we learn something vital about good, healthy administration in a biblical way here. The Corinthians have gone off the rails. Paul's confronted them. He's confronted them. But Paul knows lots of times when you administrate people, telling them something one way isn't enough. You've got to show them. And throughout Paul's writings, and particularly in the book of Philippians he does this, Paul's like, I'm going to call the church of Philippi to do something. And they, what they need to do is they need to sacrificially loving serve one another. And they're doing a terrible job at it. And so Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to call you to Jesus, who did not think equality with God was something to be held onto, but gave it up so he could humbly, sacrificially, loving serve others. So I'm going to give you the image of Jesus about the way you should serve. But then he doesn't think the church of Philippi is going to, that's enough for them. So then he calls them directly to do it. You've got to tell people what they need to do. And then he still doesn't think they're going to get it. So then he gives an example, and the examples he gives are of Timothy and Epaphroditus. You can study this in Philippians 2 if you want to this week. He gives them a living illustration. Now, he could have used himself because he was a humble, sacrificial servant. But if he uses himself, it's going to be too easy for people to say, Paul's just being arrogant. He, he could use Jesus, which he does. But it's too easy for Christians to look at Jesus and say, he's the perfect example, I'll never be perfect anyway. But by using Timothy and Epaphroditus, it kind of sticks out to them because you realize these are people just like us. And if they can humbly, sacrificially serve, so can I. That's what he does here. He knows the Corinthians have two major problems in their ministry. They don't love and they don't have integrity. They said they were going to do the job. They stopped. They said we're going to love God and others, but they're not. So guess what he does? He uses three people, Titus and two anonymous brothers, to illustrate to communicate, and ultimately to motivate what it's really like to love people and have integrity. And so there's two categories we can look at it this way. First of all, voluntary zeal. Now, the Corinthians had a problem. We saw this back in verse 8. Back in verse 8, he points out their lack of integrity. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. People are doubting, do the Corinthians really love? Why are they doubting it? Because they stopped taking up the offering. But the Corinthians know this is true about themselves. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, he had to tell them this is what loving ministry looks like? Remember Corinthians are the ones that are taking, having communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and some are getting drunk and other people are going hungry? Corinthians have major problems with love. 
And so he wants to call them to this act of ministry as a means of proving their love. So look at how he describes these guys. Back down, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care. That is an intense zeal. That is a voluntary zeal. Why? The same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. In other words, nobody's making Titus sacrifice himself and put himself at risk in order to do this ministry. Titus wants to do it. Why would Titus want to be part of a group that's going to collect all this money, put it in bags or boxes? They can't just upload it into their bank account. They can't just scan the back of a check. They're going to physically carry gold, money, resources, valuable things, and they're going to go all the way around the, the far eastern edge of the Mediterranean to get to the Judean Christians. Intense risk. They're going to go by Roman soldiers. They're going to travel past thieves. They're going to go by all these kind of people that could hurt them and steal this, and they are a prime target. It's going to be like five or six dudes, prime target, lots of money. It's been somewhat public because everybody in the churches know. In Macedonia where they're impoverished, and now in Corinth where they're wealthy. Word was going to spread, these guys have money. And Titus, of his own voluntary zeal, wants to go. This is what he's saying. Look at the love of Titus to do this ministry. Doesn't just stop with Titus, though. You can see down at the, at the third guy. You can look down in verse 22. And with them we're sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you these men are not under compulsion they're doing it because they love god and others they're doing it because they love the corinthians now have they been asked to do this ministry sure they have but paul makes it very very clear it was a request not a demand now the corinthians know what that feels like because he just finished this whole section saying I'm not making you give, but I am asking you to. And I'm not making you do it, and I'm asking you to do it because I want to give some space for you to say no. Because listen now, when you're dealing with voluntary workforce in the space that there's an available no, get this now, there's room for them to grow. Because what we have to do when we're given an opportunity for ministry is we have to go back and we have to ask ourselves, what am I prioritizing over ministry? And can I shift my priorities? In this case, let's just be very clear, financially. Can I shift my financial priorities so that I can meet the needs of these Judean Christians? This money isn't going to Paul, it's not going to these pastors, it's not going to these guys, it's going to people they've never met and never will meet. But we can apply that, and I told you last week, Paul's going to apply it across the board. You can apply it to your time and your talents. He's going to say in all things and in every way when we get into chapter 9. So when the space is given, would you please do this, or can you do this? It puts the pressure on you. And it puts the pressure on you to consider, what am I prioritizing that would keep me from being able to do that ministry? Corinthians know that that's true. And so they know that it's true about Titus and this anonymous brother. Paul's not making them do it. He's not bossing them around. He's giving them the opportunity. And they're demonstrating through their voluntary zeal 
love. When we deal with people and we administrate in a ministry context or home, even secular environment, where you can, when it's appropriate, is to rest in voluntary involvement. That doesn't mean you don't communicate the need. It doesn't mean you don't give a plan. It doesn't mean you don't ask folks to do things. But this gives the opportunity for people to grow. For these men, for Titus, this anonymous brother, their zeal, their voluntary sacrifice for ministry showcases love. The Corinthians would be forced to ask themselves, if Titus and these other two guys will leave their families, leave the comfort and security of their homes, leave their own employment, and risk it for the sake of people that they've never met, that they don't know, and that if they will do that out of love, can I not give out of love? Jesus' kingdom is advanced by people who serve out of love. But it's not just their voluntary zeal which shows their love, it's their trustworthy service which shows their integrity. Proverbs is full of warnings of dealing with lazy people. Lazy people to leaders are like smoke in the eyes and vinegar in the teeth. It's always funny, if you ever go camping or we even have our church bonfire, there's always somebody that's the smoke magnet, right? Doesn't matter where they sit their little chair, smoke finds them. And what he's telling us in Proverbs is dealing with lazy people, people who don't finish the job, people who don't do a job well, people who under pro- or overpromise and underdeliver, people who will never don't serve, people who aren't willing to do a job. It's like a constant irritant, smoke in the eyes, or vinegar in their teeth. It just sets your teeth on edge. It's that sour, oh, in the back of your throat. Ah, oh, got to deal with this. It's like trying to chew on a broken tooth, dealing with lazy people. People who don't have integrity and getting a job done and doing it well. It's a big deal to find trustworthy people. My word, Chick-fil-A was known for their customer service. My last three occasions at Chick-fil-A and Ballantyne have been near horrific. It's like nobody can hire good employees these days. What do I mean by that? Nobody can hire trustworthy people these days. People who will do the job and do it well. Paul is pointing out the incredible integrity with these guys. Dealing with money is no joke here. They're going to have access to a lot of wealth. At some point, they're going to get on the far side of the Mediterranean. They're going to be a couple hundred miles from Corinth, several hundred miles from Macedonia. Nobody's going to know where they're at. They're going to be riding into town. They're going to be exhausted. They've budgeted a little bit of the money to have places to stay. And they're going to hit town, and they're going to be like, man, do we stay in the flea bag one by the airport? Or do we step it up a couple notches and just, we're going to stay at the Hilton? We're not even going to go to the Garden Inn. We don't even look for one with a pool. We just want to sleep a little bit better tonight. Well, that's not in our budget. It's not in our budget, Titus. You need the kind of men who aren't going to say, yeah, but nobody's going to know if we take a little bit out of the bag. It's going to take integrity. Nobody's going to be there with these guys to check up on them. You need men you can trust to do this job. You need people you can depend on to do this job. You need people who will stand for truth, resist temptation, and serve sacrificially. And that's exactly what Titus is known to them to be. Titus came and brought the painful letter. Titus is the one that confronted them. Titus now wants to come back to them and they hear of his love for them. Titus is a trustworthy God. guy. But look down at the way he describes the second anonymous guy, right? So, or first anonymous guy. So you got Titus, first anonymous guy, second anonymous guy. So verse 18, with him we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. That's not Apollos, by the way. We just know because we see the list in Acts 20. 
And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Now, why is it a big deal that this dude is famous for his preaching? He's been chosen by his churches. He's famous for his preaching in Macedonia where they kill these people. What's that tell you about that guy? What's it tell you about the guy that's willing to do ministry and preach the gospel on street corners and in churches in Macedonia when that's the places where they couldn't get a hold of Paul? So they grabbed the next best thing, the guy staying next door, and beat him in the streets. That's where this guy preaches. The cities where Paul had to run out of because they were going to kill him. That's where this guy preaches. That tells you this dude, this dude has got some strength to him. This dude has got some integrity to him. This dude has courage. And if he has courage there, he's going to have courage no matter what they face on the journey. This is the kind of guy, if they get stopped by the robbers, he's going to look at the robbers and say, this is the Lord's money. This is Jesus' kingdom money. You best back up. This is a guy then that it's not just one church, but the churches have known him. He's telling them that this guy's reputation is abroad. He goes and he preaches, he's got courage, but the churches know him. It's not just one little group. When somebody applies for a job, what do they ask you for at the bottom? Recommendations, don't they? Tell me somebody that knows you that can speak good about you. That's what this guy is. What do the Corinthians lack? Integrity. I mean, was this the way people would talk about the Corinthians? They're the kind of people that they finish a job. Oh, wait, there is that offering they quit giving to. Man. The Corinthians are the kind of people who sacrifice their money for the... Oh, wait a minute. There is that thing about the Lord's Supper. They don't really do that much. He is preaching to them. And so just like when they see the love of these brothers, when they see the, the integrity of these brothers, you can just sense them asking if these guys have, are so trustworthy. And they're nameless. Paul leaves them nameless to point out and emphasize their character. He names Titus because they just know this guy. These are two nameless Macedonian guys that are about to show up. You can just sense them saying, if they are so trustworthy, if they have such integrity, can we not show the same trust by finishing giving? Jesus' kingdom is advanced through loving service. Jesus' kingdom is advanced through trustworthy servants. Paul is motivating them th these three, these people through living illustrations. Good leaders administrate. They communicate and they motivate. All of this is to advance the kingdom. But it's not just to advance the kingdom, it's to put it on display. He says it this way when we get down later in the text. In verse 20. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. In one sense, what Paul is saying is I've got all these people involved so you can quit accusing me of doing this for my own money. But he presses on. He says, if we aim at what is honorable... For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And when Paul does that, he is quoting Scripture. Paul is telling us something powerful here about the way he thinks about ministry and the way we should think about ministry. <clears throat> He's quoting from Proverbs 3, which is a reference to Psalm 85. And these are really important passages. In Proverbs 3, it says this, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Paul has just said, I'm doing this so we will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Any believer at that point, if they were aware that Paul's quoting Scripture, you're going to go back and say, what's he quoting? And Paul said, I'm doing this, X. We're doing ministry. We're administrating ministry this way 
so that we have favor and success in the sight of God and man. You get to Proverbs and you ask, well, what do you have to do to have favor and success in the God of man? He tells you in verse 3, doesn't he? Have steadfast love and faithfulness. You know what that sounds an awful lot like? Because it is love and integrity. What are the two issues in Corinth? Lack of love, lack of integrity. Paul, not so subtly, is telling them, you lack love and integrity. I'm doing ministry this way because it's how you do ministry with love and integrity. These phrases, though, steadfast love and faithfulness, are actually even much more profound than that. Psalm 85, the sons of Korah, we don't know the occasion, we know it was a time of trouble. The nation of Israel uh, has gone through a serious season of sin. Some people say that it's after uh, or post the exile, but there's no indication of exactly when. It could have been back with the judges, could have been during some of the other kings, but it's a prayer of repentance. And they're praying because their kingdom is messed up. The way they do kingdom work is a disaster. And so they are looking forward to a messianic kingdom. And they describe it this way, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. It's a curious phrase. The way they describe the future kingdom. And, and they're describing Jesus' kingdom here. Make no mistake about it. They're describing messianic kingdom. What messianic kingdom looks like is steadfast love and faithfulness. Love and integrity. Where does this happen? It happens at the cross. Where do righteousness and peace kiss each other? You know what righteousness is? The holy truth of God. You know what peace is? It's the love of God. How do those things mean? How is it that God takes very wicked sinners like you and I, who deserve and have earned nothing but his wrath, and how does that meet? And the, and the phrase there, kiss, has been translated a number of different ways. It, it's really to greet. It'd be like thinking of greeting a long-lost friend warmly. Where do these two things come together? They come together at the cross, the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because all the wrath of God and all the justice and all the truth that we deserve is poured out on Jesus out of his abundant sacrificial love for us. And in the cross of Christ, they become best friends. And you and I are rescued. And so suddenly the tenor and the tone of the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is a kingdom that's marked by both truth and love all the time. Now, this is, this is fascinating to me because I don't have the gift of administration. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a good administrator. And I'm amazed because what Paul is telling them is I view the way I administrate and the way I manage ministry as a way of actually displaying Jesus' kingdom. It actually becomes visible because it's a kingdom filled with truth and it's a kingdom filled with love. What happens in a ministry context when you lack one of, the, one of those two? Suddenly, people become a means to an end. I got a bigger plan and I don't love you and I'm just trying to get there. Have you ever felt used by a leader? Have you ever felt like you don't matter, just the job? Or if there's a lack of truth, you end up with people that say, I'll do a job, but they don't ever do it. 
You have people that never confront or commend because they don't love the people they're working with or over or under. Jesus' kingdom is to be remarkably different. All the angst that you experience when you go through your life this week of either poorly managed home, poorly managed workplace, whether you're the boss or the employee, poorly managed church, all the angst and anxiety you go through, get, get this now, Jesus' kingdom should actually be what's put on display. And it should be put on display by managing and leading in truth and in love. It's kind of... You start realizing, do you see that theme in Jesus' preaching and teaching? What kind of worshipers is he pursuing? Those who worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. He's making a kingdom filled with kingdom citizens, and he's calling us to manage and work in the kingdom in the same way so that people would see the king. The kingdom is seen. Healthy administration advances Christ's kingdom while putting Christ on display. So how do we do that? I'll just give you some questions here at the end. Do you tend to prioritize people over projects? You should. You can reverse it. Or do you tend to prioritize projects over people? Relational connection and getting the job done. Listen, what God wants from us as we work with people is 360-degree discipleship. Paul doesn't set the Corinthians aside, he keeps reaching into their lives even though they failed. He commends Titus, these two anonymous brothers. He commends what the Corinthians could do. He sets out for them success. He loves them. He tries to disciple them as he's working with them. Paul doesn't say, I'm done dealing with you. What really matters is the Judeans. Poor administrators prioritize projects over people. Worldly, sinful administrators. This is why Paul even had to tell the disciples, don't lead like the Gentiles lead. The Gentiles lead and lost people lead in such a way that I'll bring my hammer down on you as long as it gets your job done. You're another head for me to step on as I climb the ladder. And we can do this in our homes just as easily as we can do it in our workplaces, just as easily as we can do it in the life of the church. But godly administration is going to prioritize people over projects. You're going to understand that Jesus is on mission to lovingly change people, not just get done the job that you think needs to get done. Do you seek the growth of those above and below you to be like Christ as you work together? Are you noted for both commending and confronting? It's got to be both. It's got to be both. Everybody's going to need some confrontation. Everybody's going to need some discipleship. Everybody's going to need to grow. God's going to reveal it as we try to do ministry together. That's going to need some confrontation. It's also going to need some commendation as people do things well. Is it evident that you're building Christ's kingdom or your kingdom? Is this about making you look good? Is this about what you're doing? Is this about your task list, your check boxes, your jobs? This is why he even has to tell us things like, uh, man's anger does not work the, the will of God, right? We think we can angrily administrate and manage, and that's going to get people to do what we want them to do. And we might hide that in lots of places in the life of the church, but, but we'll put it on full display in our secular workplaces, in our neighborhoods, or dealing with our children or our spouses. Is your service marked by love and integrity? Do you overpromise and underdeliver? Do you finish jobs well? Do you do what you say you're going to do and do it to the best of your ability and the power of God? Can you be trusted to do the job well? Can you be trusted to finish the task? All of these things ultimately work out. 
for the glory of Christ. He says it this way as he finishes the text and we finish this morning. Verse 23, as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. That's fascinating. He's sending Titus to get money from them. Paul sees this whole thing as helping the Corinthians. Paul doesn't see himself as above Titus. He, he sees him as a very peer level, partner, fellow worker, even though Paul's administrating and leading. As for our brothers, they're messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. What he's telling us is this active ministry, not just the active ministry of generosity, but the way we're doing it makes Jesus look big. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. And what was he boasting about of the Corinthians? They didn't start, they didn't, they, they messed up, but they're going to finish well. You know, his boast is, it all ends with this. Prove your love and your integrity. Prove it by the way you do ministry. Do you do ministry in a way, do you administrate in a way that points to Jesus' kingdom or to your kingdom? Jesus wants his kingdom to be shown and known. And he wants to do it through the lives of his people.